world, you're listening to The Dogs Program. Once again, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday, as I'm sure you're well aware, to defend and to promote public education. We're also very much against the public funding of private education, the privatisation of education in Australia and the outsourcing of the education of our children to the private uh, contractors like uh, the religious groups. Now we have a website at www.adogs.info and we have a press release 974. This takes us up to New South Wales. As most of you are aware, there has been an election there, which means that with perhaps the exception of Tasmania, Australia's gone red, not very red, pink perhaps, because there are Labor governments throughout Australia. And this means that the Labor Party is very much on trial. What are they going to do for public schools? The Coalition have made a terrible mess of both our public systems and also uh, our climate change. But is Albanese and all his state premiers who are Labor Party people going to make a difference? Well, let's have a look at New South Wales. Everybody in the Cabinet has gone to public schools with one exception, and you don't have to be a prophet or the son of a prophet to work out who's the exception. It's the Minister for Education who went to a Catholic girls' school. Okay, Kim, tell us all about it. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this is Press Release 974. All the New South Wales men's government's Ministers are public school graduates, except the Minister for Education. The election of the men's Labor government in New South Wales and indeed the return of Labor governments throughout Australia is, in part, a reaction to the deliberate neglect and denial which has left public schools and TAFE grossly underfunded in comparison with private schools. Angelo Gavrielatos, the president of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, in his 26 March press release said, Federation is ready to work with the incoming men's government to urgently address the unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries of teachers that are responsible for the teacher shortage crisis and begin the implementation of New South Wales Labor's commitments of greater support and funding for public schools and TAFE. But perhaps the most interesting thing about the new men's government ministry is that all of its members went to public schools, with one notable exception, the Minister for Education, Carr. She went to a Catholic girls' school. In an article in the Sydney Morning Herald of March 26, 2023, entitled Meet the People Set to Make Up the Next New South Wales Government, Christopher Harris listed their CVs as follows. Prue Carr. Born and raised in Western Sydney, Deputy Premier-elect and soon-to-be Education Minister Prue Carr has been the member of for Londonderry since she won the seat from the Liberals in 2015. She was educated at a Catholic girls' school. Before joining Parliament, she worked as the National Communications Manager for Multiple Sclerosis Australia and was also an advisor to former Premier Bob Carr. Last year, she was diagnosed with a kidney tumour before undergoing treatment. She has one son, Max, who is in primary school and last October became engaged to her partner, Brad. John Graham. John Graham is expected to be Minister for Roads as well as the Arts when the Men's Ministry is sworn in. He has been a member of the New South Wales Upper House since 2016. Graham grew up in government housing in Albury, moved to Newcastle and graduated from Newcastle High before completing a Bachelor of Economics at the University of Sydney. Before joining Parliament, he worked in the higher education sector, was Assistant General Secretary for the New South Wales Labor Party and was Deputy Chief of Staff to former New South Wales Premier Nathan Rees. He was a vocal critic of the previous government's lockout laws. He is married with two children. Daniel Mookie. Daniel Mookie is set to be the next Treasurer of New South Wales. His parliamentary career goes back to 2015 when he was elected to the Upper House. The son of migrants from the state of Punjab in North India, he was born in Blacktown and was raised in Marylands. He attended Model Farms High School in Borkham Hills and then Girawine High School and embarked on a career in the union movement. 
He worked as a lawyer for the Transport Workers Union before joining Parliament. His Labour colleagues credit him as playing a key role in uncovering numerous coalition party scandals, including the Barilaro trade saga. He is married with two children. Around New South Wales Parliament House, he is known for his strong sense of individual style and is often seen wearing different swags of colourful dots stripes paired with bold coloured glasses. Joe Halen is expected to be the state's next transport minister. Halen grew up in Sydney, attended Ataman Public and Willoughby Girls School. At the age of 15, after hearing Pauline Hanson's maiden speech to Parliament in 1996, she organised for her classmates to attend a rally in the CBD against the notion that Australia should return to the days of the white Australia policy. She completed an arts degree at the University of Sydney and later worked for future Prime Ministers Anthony Albanese and Julia Gillard in her 20s before being elected the member for Summerhill in the 2015 election. Penny Sharp. Penny Sharp has been in the New South Wales Upper House since 2005 and is expected to be the Minister for the Environment and Heritage. She grew up in Canberra, went to public schools before studying at the University of New South Wales. She was president of the National Union of Students and has worked as policy advisors for former state ministers. Sharp has a broad range of experience in Parliament, having previously been the Shadow Minister for Transport, Family and Community Services. She has three children and was the first openly gay woman to take a seat in the New South Wales Parliament. Ryan Park. Ryan Park is expected to be the Minister for Health and Mental Health. He was raised in Dapto Dapto in the Illawarra, then attended Dapto High School where he became school captain. Park studied teaching at the University of Wollongong. He majored in health and physical education and won the university medal in that faculty. He went on to become a PE teacher at Illawarra High Since then, he has worked as a curriculum advisor at the Department of Education, Chief of Staff to former Labor MP and Transporter Minister David Campbell and Deputy Director General for Transport New South Wales. His time in Parliament has included a stint as Shadow Treasurer. His hobbies include running, bushwalking and reading. Paul Scully. Paul Scully has been the member for Wollongong since 2016 and is set to be the state's next planning and police minister. Scully was raised in the village of Mount Kembala on the outskirts of Wollongong, attended Mount Kembala Public School and Fig Tree High School and was the first in his family to graduate from university. He has a background in economics and was the chief operating officer at the University of Wollongong's Australian Institute for Innovative Materials. Paul Scully has been the member for Wollongong since 2016 and is set to be the state's next planning and police minister. Dogs congratulate the New South Wales Labor Party on their win in New South Wales and look forward to the Labor Party in Victoria and the rest of Australia recognising the importance of a public education in this country. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much. That's a very interesting lineup, isn't it? Most of them, of course, went to public schools, but as well as that, they appear to have had some academic training as well. Uh, they seem to have uh, even had an academic career. But a lot of them have also uh, become Labor Party apparatchiks. They've worked for other Labor Party members. So one will watch with interest how they make decisions up there in New South Wales and the effect that it has down here in Victoria because the New South Wales public system has always been much stronger, both financially and numerically, than the Victorian one. What goes on there has its repercussions in Victoria, and uh, I think we should be also looking at where these people send their children to school as well as where they went to school. But um, that's all for the moment. We'll keep you advised if we find out anything more, because the dogs believe that particularly Ministers for Education, should send their children to state schools. Commitment matters, and the dogs are committed to the public system. So we'll have a bit of a break, and Sorrell's going to come back with a few facts and figures that might shock you. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program still, I hope, 
And uh, here is Sol with a few facts and figures to shock you. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. This might shock you. Public funding to help build private schools, no gain for the Australian taxpayer, but state governments know that. Once built, the Commonwealth plus parents pays to run them. Who wins? State treasuries. Who loses? Public school parents and the taxpayer. On current trends, public schools will never be funded to their full SRS. The funding mechanism combined with locked-in inequalities will guarantee that it won't happen. Urban and rural myths. Private school families include many disadvantaged students. Not many, maybe some. Anyone can use my school to check the situation in their local schools. Old claims versus new realities. In 1999, David Kemp, federal education minister, said that his funding would extend school choice to low-income families. That didn't happen. Some graphical graphics. This week's graph sums up much more about Australia's schools. Figure this out. The sectors are said to be different, but when similar schools enrolling similar students are compared, they are indeed similar. Have a closer look. They said, what? The now departed chief executive of the Association for Independent Schools, New South Wales, Jeff Newcomb, once said that some schools must make up the accompanying loss of government funding by raising fees, shedding staff, or a combination of both. Raising fees? Again? It might be better in the time of teacher shortages to let the shedding begin. Did you know that we spend more on schools without improving results? True, but much of the problem is created by duplication of schools and too much going into too many highly funded schools. Stuff that adds up. On average, private schools get less public funding than do public schools. Indeed, but they don't enrol as many higher cost kids. Comparing averages is very misleading. And for a different perspective, the Commonwealth spends 16 billion annually on private schools. And that's 16 billion, that's not going to public schools. This does shock me, all of these things shock me. Back over to you, Jean. Yes, I think that that 16 billion is actually a, a very conservative figure. I suspect it's closer to 19 billion. And then when you look at all of the uh, taxation expenditures and exemptions, I suspect that you can almost double it. So what private uh, schools are getting uh, out of the Australian taxpayer is just not good policy and it's certainly not economics, good economics. It's a big overspend on the wealthy. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to a very interesting article that appeared in the conversation and Dale's going to read it for us. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Oh, well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope. And uh, if you want to find out more about us, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info or you can go to the 3CR website and uh, listen to a podcast of previous uh, weeks. But um, we're going to get a little tiny bit academic now. Dale is going to read us a very interesting article which compares the ideas on education of Kevin Rudd and uh, a recent tome written by Mr Chalmers. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got an article by Chris Bonner and Peter Morgan. The Labor Essayists. 
Chalmers, Rudd and the failing market of schools. There are echoes of Kevin Rudd's 2009 essay in Jim Chalmers' recent tome. Themes of social justice, equity and fairness still resonate, but this time around, Labor needs to think beyond the lofty ideas to confront what it all means for Australia's schools. Both essays followed crises that exposed and exacerbated inequalities on a domestic and international scale. Such times encourage big thinking. In his essay, The Global Financial Crisis, Rudd targeted 30 years of neoliberalism. Chalmers, Capitalism After the Crisis, now seeks to give capitalism a human face. It is timely to see Chalmers' effort in the context of Rudd's Rudd's effort in 2009. Rudd's essay seemed to create many breaks with the past, but the following few years revealed a considerable gap between his essay and what happened next. Nothing shows this more than school education. Labor promised a review of school funding, but it was over two years before the Education Minister, Julia Gillard, announced it while issuing restrictions on what it could do. When the eventual review concluded, Labor didn't address its much-watered-down recommendations for yet another year. Rudd, the essayist, complained about governments that were notoriously reluctant to identify and respond to instances of market failure. But in the end, his own government and that of Gillard barely impacted on the failing market of schools. Consequently, this failure is still with us. Rudd's ideal world was one in which the state intervenes to reduce the greater inequalities that competitive markets will inevitably generate. In school education, however, this intervention was riddled with caveats and compromises. Yes, successive governments were committed to the idea of equity funding, but we are still waiting. Meanwhile, the situation has deteriorated significantly over the last decade. The lingering reality is that both sides of politics continue to assume that the neoliberal gospel of choice and competition will work for schools. Governments have stood on the sideline as unregulated competition between schools has accelerated segregation of school enrolments with regressive impacts on overall school student achievement. Their main intervention is to mandate school reforms which don't seem to have made much difference. The nature of 21st century education reform. Choice and competition between schools has done nothing for innate school quality. Instead, they prioritise attracting preferred enrolments, those students who will enhance a school's profile. It's always been an unequal competition. Three decades ago, those schools which were behind the starting line when the competition gun went off have ended up being further behind, creating more winners and losers among children, schools and communities. The uneven playing field has created a neoliberal's dream and the Social Democrats' worst nightmare. Rudd wrote how social justice is founded on the argument that all human beings have an intrinsic right to human dignity, equality of opportunity and the ability to lead a fulfilling life. The foundations for this, or something alarmingly different, are families and schools. Enter Jim Chalmers. It is refreshing to see another politician looking well beyond the electoral cycle, coming up with insights of great relevance to the education system. A strong theme for Chalmers is inclusion. Economic inclusion is the measure of a decent society and is also a precondition for a robust economy. It makes our economies stronger. If he makes any transition from words to policy, he could start with schools. It is exclusion, not inclusion, that drives the school market. Only public schools are inclusive, and not even all of them. Unregulated exclusion should disturb any economist interested in productivity. Our school, our system of schools is hardly productive, being characterised by inefficiencies bordering on profligate waste, 
evident in the facilities arms race and over-servicing at one end and a lingering inequity at the other. Australia duplicates its provision of schools in the interest of choice, but only for those who can pay. Little of this translates into higher student achievement. Chalmers states that inclusion is fundamental to the health of democracies. By any measure, the health of democracies is poorly served by a system of schools which exhibits all the characteristics of class-based divisions. Our school system now reduces the prospect of students learning in inclusion, inclusive and diverse schools, in the process reducing the likelihood that they will emerge more resilient with superior social literacy to become better citizens. Chalmers states there are ways to protect essential public goods and direct investments to areas where there are financial and social returns available. School education is a key public good where investment brings economic benefits. The need for greater equity is at the core. He is explicit in stating a failure to deal with Inequity is a handbrake on our economic potential. This is willful neglect with economic and social consequences. In addressing this reality, Chalmers needs to start inside his own tent. In 2013, Labor wasn't united on implementing what was left of Gonski and continued to drag the chain. Far too often, Labor politicians seem to pay homage to John Howard's constituency, the now one-third of voters who have bought into exclusivity. It may have worked in the past, but can now easily be seen as willful neglect of public education families, a neglect with serious economic, social and democratic implications. Many of these implications will seem familiar. While our NAPLAN and PISA performances stagnate or go backwards, the rate of mental health issues among students rises. Our social cohesion is being undermined and we risk raising a generation locked, locked out or held back by the system from kindergarten. As Chalmers states, the political fracturing in the United States, for example, was built out of a group of people feeling that they'd been left behind. The jobs of the future were for other people's kids. Social shifts didn't align with their views and they faced entrenched disadvantages. Are we that far behind this scenario? Where to from here? Chalmers suggests we reimagine and redesign markets. However, leadership studies agree that strategy is 80% execution. That is, putting ideas, the why, into action. What, how, when, and what if? Rudd and Gillard fell well short in their execution. Perhaps Chalmers is of a different ilk. Under strong leadership, through stakeholder engagement, the education market could be redesigned. A different future can be imagined. While many parents have chosen exclusivity in the current failed market, they might equally respond if there was a level playing field with stronger local schools for local kids, rebuilding neighbourhoods and communities. They would be well served by properly resourced and staffed schools with a diverse student body, a rich extracurricular program, producing great academic and social outcomes. All this within walking distance or a short commute. Happy kids, less pressured parents. Both Rudd in 2009 and Chalmers today have articulated a commendable vision. Both have been criticised for their lack of detail and a disconnect between vision and policy. Labor should, could start now by brokering a conversation about how to turn dreams into a semblance of reality, starting with the very foundations, our, fra our framework of schools. That was from Chris Bonner. Back to you, Jean. Well, uh, you're listening to the Dogs Program and uh, we've been listening to Dale on Chalmers and Rudd, 12 years apart, but um, I'm not sure that the market for schools is any better than it was. In fact, it's getting worse. But um, teachers are fed up. They're fed up and they're leaving the teaching service. So there's some very interesting uh, material in the media about this and uh, Kim is going to tell us about the top teachers 
who are urging better pay, flexibility, and less administration, actually. So over to you, Kim. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, this uh, article's titled, Top Teachers Urge Better Pay, Flexibility to Address Staff Shortages in Schools, and was written by Nicole Priestel and Adam Carey, March 23rd. An estimated 15% of available places in teaching courses at Australian universities are going unfilled as school leaders steer clear of a vocation they perceive as inflexible and poorly paid. School and university education leaders say teaching is a rewarding career, but the industry needs to respond to changing attitudes about workplace flexibility, such as a desire to work from home, and offer salaries that match the rising cost of living. An expert panel on Australia's teaching workforce this week proposed radical changes to educating aspiring teachers in universities to boost the status of the professional leavers, including setting a minimum ATAR for teaching to 80, up from 70 in Victoria, and introduce publicly reported benchmarks on attrition rates and graduate diversity. The subject of teacher shortages dominated discussion at the fourth annual The Age School Summit held in Melbourne on Thursday, 24th of March, 2023. The head of one of Victoria's leading teacher education schools said the staffing crisis in Australia was one of quantity, not quality. The current crop of teaching graduates was high quality, but there was not nearly enough of them, said Professor Jim Waterston, Dean of the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education. Most of our universities are down 15% in terms of entrance. There are 4,000 to 6,000 positions still available across the country, across 10,000 schools, he said. Most of those schools don't have a full complement of teachers, he said. Speaking at the summit, Waterston said a rethink was needed on what a teacher's lifestyle and workload was if the sector was to attract more people to the profession. It's a really difficult time to attract students into teaching because there are so many other options out there, he said. Waterston said teacher salaries make it difficult for them to afford to live in their communities and beefing pay up would attract more people to the job. Panelist Joanne Kumazados, the principal Edgars Creek Secondary School in Wallet, one of Melbourne's fastest growing schools, said many graduate teachers were influenced by their friends' more flexible and often higher paying careers. They have friends who can work from home one or two days a week, even three days a week, Kumazado said. They have friends who want leave without pay to go to a music festival or to travel overseas for a friend's birthday, and that's okay. They don't have a principal or manager sitting across the table looking aghast, saying, but you have students and we have a commitment to teaching them. Kamazato has 45 early career teachers at her growth cor cor corridor school in Melbourne's northern fringe who have worked in the profession for less than three years. Her school requires the recruitment of dozens of extra teachers each year, it hired more than 30 for this year, some of whom left within months. I have had some teachers leave already this term, she said. There are about 900 teacher vacancies in government schools early this week, several weeks into term one. Education Minister Natalie Hutchins said the vacancies equate to about one per school, but the shortage was unevenly distributed. Some schools have a full staff allocation, while others, particularly in outer suburban and regional areas, have a high number of vacancies. These are also There are also shortages in certain subject areas, including math, sciences and languages. Hutchins said the department was reaching out to registered teachers who were not currently teaching and had also registered 2,000 new teachers. It's a jigsaw puzzle in terms of solutions, she said, pointing out that 12 schools had opened at the start of this year, with another 14 to open next year. That's a big workforce to plug into schools. Government school teachers this year won a 90-minute cut to face-to-face -to -face teaching hours, requiring the hiring of an extra 19, 1,900 teachers. Andrea Del Monaco, the Department of Education's Deputy Secretary of the school's workforce group, said government and independent schools were competing for staff, but independents could make faster hiring decisions. Del Monaco said the department's clunky online system took 14 days to process applications for state school teachers. Independent Education Union Deputy Secretary David Breer said Catholic and independent schools were also struggling to fill vacancies. Many schools were putting a teacher in front of every classroom, but whether the teacher was qualified to lead the subject in question was another matter, Bria said. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, unless they do something about teachers and there they are essential for the next generation, unless uh, they're, they're paid more and treated with more respect, 
uh, then all schools, and particularly public schools, have got a problem. And it goes back to the 19th century where they worked out that you had to give the teachers security, contract, no contract teachers. We shouldn't have contract teachers in our schools. If they're good enough to employ, they're good enough to give a permanent job. And uh, the administration should be done by administrators elsewhere than in the school. And uh, the school, the teachers should not have to be answerable to payment by results with NAPLAN tests and be judged by NAPLAN tests that are set up in Canberra and even overseas with the PISA tests. But, yes, there's a lot of things that uh, our administrators and politicians have forgotten uh, and uh, the teachers are on the receiving end. So we'll have a bit of a, a break and we'll come back to um, see what the Australian Education Union has to say about perhaps the main issue of our times, which is the climate crisis and how it impacts on our young lives of our children in our schools. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I, I hope. And if you'd been listening to us a few weeks, a few years ago, you would have heard Dale talking to the young people in our schools at a climate change rally in the city. It was a wonderful day and we were so proud of our young people. But the Australian Education Union hasn't forgotten that actually climate change uh, is the issue of our time and it is our young people who are going to inherit the problems that have been created by past generations and current generations for that matter uh, in Canberra. So let's hear from Sol on the climate crisis and how it impacts young lives from the Australian Education Union. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. The Australian Education Union writes, as much of Australia recovers after devastating floods, research here and overseas shows that the effect of extreme weather events on children's education extends beyond interruptions caused by school closures, damage to buildings and loss of materials to childhood development and health. In Australia, Associate Dean and Associate Professor of Education at Charles Sturt University, Brendan Hindman is co-editing a forthcoming book, The Impact of Extreme Weather on School Education, with Jennifer Vanos, Associate Professor in the School of Sustainability in the College of Global Futures at Arizona State University. The book considers how to protect international school communities from extreme weather influences, the training that teachers receive for weather protection in schools, building design and the impact of closures on schools. Often these issues only receive attention during disasters, says Hindman, but there are other hidden aspects that have an impact on children's education. He says even elevated temperatures, lack of airflow, or if children are not quite protected and supported enough in the schoolyard can affect learning. Hindman observed students in Darwin who were exposed to learn under extreme and prolonged heat, despite research showing they are most attentive at temperatures between 20 and 24 degrees. In some schools, there is air conditioning in staff rooms, but not in classrooms, he says. The extreme heat could have a negative effect on students and teachers' health, but also their functioning and ability to pay attention and learn. Often conditions lead to turnovers of teachers, which had a negative impact on students' continuity of learning. By negatively impacting students' ability to learn, the heat could cause Northern Australian students to lag behind Southern jurisdictions across a range of learning outcomes, Hindman says. 
One US study found that exposure to extreme heat and rain during prenatal and early childhood years in countries in the global tropics could make it more difficult for children to complete secondary school education. The Young Lives Study, an Oxford University longitudinal research project that has followed the lives of 12,000 children across four continents since 2001, reveals extreme weather events are having a significantly unequal effect on the poorest and most vulnerable children. The study of two birth cohorts in India, Peru, Vietnam and Ethiopia looked at the climate conditions the children have experienced as well as their nutrition, height and weight. Cognitive skills such as maths and vocabulary and educational attainment. Dr. Catherine Porter, Young Lives Director, said the study found climate related shocks would even affect a child in the womb. We have research from India that shows if a mother has experienced a flood or a drought, it affects the child's later outcomes in terms of their educational achievements like maths or vocabulary, she says. Similar consequences occurred when the children in Peru experienced frost or rainfall shocks or when there was a drought in Ethiopia. Recent research undertaken by Young Lives in Vietnam concluded that childhood exposure to climate shocks such as flooding and related crop failures affects children's nutrition, growth, cognitive skills and access to education. This impedes their learning, including developing basic basic literacy, numeracy, and socio-emotional skills with the poorest children most affected. Shocks can lead to the poorest families withdrawing children from school and girls and young women often taking responsibility for household chores and childminding, the Young Lives study found. Children can be temporarily pulled out of school and depending on how long that lasts, it could become permanent, says Porter. For example, in Ethiopia, around half of the children studied have not yet finished their schooling and they are coming up to age 20, she says. What can be done? It's getting hot. A 2019 UNICEF paper on climate change effects in East Asia and the Pacific says education systems urgently need a strong voice in climate change discussions. Several years later, there is still a significant gap, according to a UNICEF spokesperson. Only 12 of the 27 climate change plans submitted by countries in the East Asia and Pacific region mention education. And even then, the focus on education as a tool to raise awareness of climate change without considering the huge needs of the education sector. Education officials must have a seat at the table when these plans and financing priorities are developed and children's views and priorities must be taken into account. That means looking beyond physical losses, as the indirect impact on children's education can be more long-lasting and potentially more costly. The report cited 2018 World Bank Global Analysis of Miseducation, which shows that limited educational opportunities for girls and barriers to completing 12 years of education cost countries between 15 trillion and 30 trillion US. Action could include improving the evidence base to inform climate and education policies and developing sustainable financing mechanisms for climate resilient education systems, the report says. Young Lives also highlights the need for better policy connections. A Young Lives policy brief issued this year says that policymakers need to better understand how climate-related shocks, nutrition, and foundational learning interconnect. That would enable more social protection programs to reach disadvantaged households in disaster-prone regions, particularly those aimed at vulnerable infants and adolescent girls and aligned with early learning and school feeding programs. Porter says safety nets in Ethiopia and Peru have had a protective impact on young people's skills. She says ideally policies such as insurance-based support to governments in developing countries would be in place before a shock occurred and there would be automatic triggers when rainfall was above or below a certain level. Things can be done to mitigate, but of course it would be better to try and stop the acceleration of the climate crisis, says Porter. And this article was by Christine Long, originally published in the Australian Education Summer in 2022. Um, Back over to Eugene. 
Well, thank you very much. That's very interesting, isn't it? And um, we hope that those people who are listening uh, find it interesting too because uh, public education is just so important, but it's even more important that our children are in schools where they can learn and not be overheated or too cold so that they are not able to learn. They should also be properly fed. But uh, these three things are not always there for our children. You'd think they'd be absolutely basic, wouldn't you? But uh, in Australia, there's a great deal of poverty and there's a great deal of school buildings that don't have air conditioning or a proper place for children to learn. So thank you very much, Sorrel. I can vouch for the difficulties around temperature in the classroom. Virtually impossible to learn in the heat. I went to a public school in central Queensland and we had a lot of demountable buildings, a lot of what we call portables, which were essentially just tin sheds. And they all had a thermometer on the outside of the building. And when the thermometer outside reached 45 degrees, we were all sent, we were sent home from school. It was deemed too hot. But inside the demountables, it was like 47, 48 degrees because it was just so hot, but it was only ever taken on the outside of the building. So the ambient temperature inside those tin sheds was, you know, it, you can imagine a, a bunch of teenagers in that kind of heat just melting and your ability to pay attention, you know, it is compromised, not one might imagine. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's have a quick break and come back. RCR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and it's time to go overseas with Jeff. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And we're going to Florida where uh, uh, Diana Rabich has written on the 27th of March about um, an article about what's happening in Florida. And DeSantis signs a bill for vouchers for all students. So this is pretty big news in the States. Um, anyway, so we're going to read this article. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis signed, signed legislation that will offer public money for the schooling of every student in the state with no income limits. The state will pay tuition for private schools, religious schools, homeschooling, or any other variety of schooling. Critics warned that this bill would be devastating for the state's public schools. Voucher schools are completely unregulated. unregulated. The students are not required to take state tests. The schools are not required to hire certified educators. Anything goes. Florida has tough accountability, accountability for public schools, but no accountability for voucher schools. The Orlando Sentinel reported that a bill signing ceremony at the private boys' school, high school in Miami, DeSantis described the legislation as the largest expansion of education choice not only in the history of this state, but in the history of these United States. That is a big deal. The controversial bill was celebrated by GOP leaders and parents who currently use the scholarships, but it also faces fierce criticism from those who say its price tag estimates range from $210 million to $4 billion in the first year, will devastate public schools, which educate about 87% of Florida's students. Critics also argue an expansion will mean more public money spent on private, mostly religious schools that operate without state oversight. Some of the schools hire teachers without college degrees and denied mission to certain children, most often those who don't speak English fluently, have disabilities or are gay. Funneling this much in taxpayer dollars to private schools with no parameters to ensure accountability for student success is fiscally irresponsible and puts at risk the families and communities who utilise our state's public schools and the services they provide, said Sadaf Knight, CEO of the Florida Policy Institute, in a statement. 
The think tank opposes the expansion of Florida's voucher programs and estimated the $4 billion hit to public schools. Though Through its voucher programs, Florida currently provides scholarships to more than 252,000 children with disabilities or from low-income families. Under the new law, the income guidelines are wiped out, though preference will be given to those from low- and middle-income backgrounds. The result of the universal voucher law is that all of the 2.9 million public school-aged children in Florida could opt for an education savings account if they left public schools, and those who already homeschooled or in private school could seek the money too. In 2017, the Orlando Sentinel published a prize-winning investigation of Florida's voucher schools called Schools Without Rules. The series has been repeatedly updated. It's worth subscribing to the newspaper to read the series. Um, in another article, um, she, Diana Ravitch goes on, Florida passed legislation to offer vouchers to every st student in the state, regardless of their income. Rich and poor are eligible for state largesse. Florida joins five other states with universal vouchers, West Virginia, Arizona, Arkansas, and Iowa and, and Utah. The Education Law Center predicted last month that the expansion of vouchers to all students, rich and poor, would cost the state at least $4 billion in the first year. Half of that amount would be a bonanza for students already in private schools. Perhaps you remember the battle cry for vouchers over the past three decades. Vouchers will save poor children from failing public schools. We now know that every part of this plea was mistaken. Vouchers do not produce academic gains for the poor children who transfer from public schools to private schools that accept them. The overwhelming majority of recent long-term studies report that vouchers have a negative effect on low-income children. Most return to their public schools in need of remediation. In state after state, most vouchers are claimed by students who have never attended public schools. 75 to 80% of voucher recipients were already enrolled in private schools and their families are not poor. The Universal Voucher Program is a subsidy for the rich at the expense of public schools. In, and there's another article from the day before, the 26th, where she writes, uh, in Pennsylvania, cyber charters are an educational disaster. Pennsylvania has 14 cyber charters, which are very profitable to their owners. A new book reviews the outcomes of cyber charters as compared to brick-and-mortar schools. Attending a cyber charter has negative effects. Um, I'm gathering that the cyber charter is uh, basically um, by computer. The book that, that Diane is referring to is um, Cyber versus Brick and Mortar, Achievement, Attainment and Post-Secondary Outcomes in Pennsylvania Charter High Schools uh, through MIT Press uh, by Sarah A. Cordes uh, from Temple University. And the abstract of that book is interesting. It says, The charter school sector has expanded beyond brick and mortar schools to cyber schools where enrolment grew almost tenfold between 2015 and 2020. While a large literature documents the effects of charter schools on test scores, Fewer studies explore impacts on attainment or post-secondary outcomes, and there is almost no work exploring the consequences of cyber charter enrolment for these outcomes. Uh, she examines I examine the, the impacts of Pennsylvania's charter high schools on student attendance, achievement, graduation, and post-secondary enrolment, distinguishing the impacts of brick-and-mortar from cyber schools. I find that brick-and-mortar charters have no or positive effects across outcomes, and the effects are concentrated in urban districts and amongst black and economically disadvantaged students. By contrast, attending a cyber charter is associated with almost universally worst outcomes with little evidence of heterogeneity. Students who enrol in a cyber charter at the beginning of ninth grade are 9.5 percentage points less likely to graduate, a 16.8% less likely to enrol in college, and a 15% less likely to persist in post-secondary education beyond one semester. These results suggest that additional regulation and oversight of cyber charter schools is warranted and also bring into question the efficacy of online education. So that's um, what's going on in, a, in the states. Huge move to charter schools pressured in mainly red states and uh, as usual, Diane Ravitch is right, right on it. This article is from uh, The Guardian now. We're going over to England and it's... It's from the 28th of March by Rowena Mason and Richard Adams. It says, The prospect of more teacher strikes in England as union is insulted by pay offer. 
It goes, a major teaching union has criticised ministers insulting a new pay offer, raising the prospect of further walkouts in school this spring. The National Education Union said the offer of a 4.3% rise for most teachers plus a £1,000 one-off payment for the 2023-24 year was not enough, and it will recommend that its members reject the deal. Talks between the government and four teaching unions ended on Monday, with the unions considering the offer from the Department of Education. However, the National Education Union said the government was only offering to fund half a percentage point of the pay increase, with the rest expected to come out of existing school budgets. Uh, Dr Mary Boosted and Kevin Courtney, Joint General Secretaries of the NEU, said it does not match the offer in Scotland and Wales or address the crisis in teacher recruitment. This is an insulting offer from a government which simply does not value teachers, they said. Not only is the offer on pay entirely out of step with the rest of the UK, it is also not fully funded. NEU analysis shows that between 2 and 5, that's 42%, and 3 and 5, 58% of schools would have to make cuts to avoid, to afford staff pay rises. Schools will continue to be stretched financially and it is students who will suffer. It's now crystal clear that we have an education secretary and a government that is ignoring the crisis in our schools and colleges. By refusing to address the, the legitimate and reasonable request to bring and to an end more than a decade of below inflation unfunded teacher pay increases, the government is driving teaching and recruitment retention in schools to Eng- in England to breaking point. They said the loss of talented teachers should be a point of shame for this government and they said it will be considering our next steps in the campaign to stand up for the education of children and the teaching profession. When members have had their verdict on the deal, uh, they said, the ballot opens on Monday and closes on Sunday the 2nd of April. The statement over pay could see further strikes this spring and summer from the NEU and other teaching unions such as the NASUWT if they decide to ballot members on industrial action. The DFE made a fresh pay offer in an effort to resolve strikes that have been seen walkouts in schools across England after progress with new pay offers in the health and transport sectors. The offer was first revealed by Paul Whiteman, General Secretary of the National Association of Head Teachers, NAHT, who made a statement saying, formal talks between education unions and the government have now concluded and an offer has been made. It sounds pretty insubstantial, half of 1% and the rest to be taken from really struggling school budgets. Um, sounds like the Tories are really making a bit of a mess of public education. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, now we've got the good news. There's always plenty of bad news, isn't there? But we've got the good news with our great state school, and here is Maddie to tell us what it is this week. Over to you, Maddie. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Congratulations, Braybrook Secondary College. You are our great state school of the week. Braybrook College is a year 7 to 12 single campus co-ed multicultural college largely serving the areas of Sunshine and Footscray. The school is well resourced with facilities including computer labs, a numeracy centre, a music centre, a drama centre, a gym, a library careers centre, food and home economics centre, woodwork centre and machine workshop. (laughs) ceramics and art studios, science laboratories, canteens, synthetic soccer pitch, landscapes, gardens, and a covered barbecue area. That is jam-packed full of fun. The school also has a range of special programs, including an international students program, a program for students with a disability, an EAL program, a student at risk program, a literacy program, a STEM program, a peer support program, and a program for high achievers. Um, The 2022 median study score was 31. 9.65% of study scores were 40 or above. 30 students achieved an ATAR in the 90s. 71 students achieved an ATAR of 80 or above. And the average ATAR is 74.6, which is incredible. 
I'm going to shoot some facts and figures at you now from the Akara My School website. There are 1,365 students enrolled at this school. The Ixia value is well below average at 960. In the upper quartile of parental income, there is 7% of the students. In the second quartile, there is 16% of the students. In the third quartile, there is 27%. And in the lowest quartile, there is 50% of students. So really, it's a school which is representative of the disadvantaged Australian community. 85% speak a language other than English and 1% are Indigenous students. To finances, the Australian government provides $5 million annually. The Victorian government, $19.5 million. Fees and parental contributions amount to $568,000 and other private contributions are $53,800. It costs per pupil to send to this school $18,412 and in capital over the last three years there has been $961,000. So congratulations Braybrook Secondary College, you are our great state school of the week. Many thanks. So that's the end of the Dogs program for this week. And we thank Dale, our brilliant uh, producer, and Maddie and Sol and Kim. And for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.